This is One Bills Live, presented by Kaleida Health. Happy Monday, everybody. One Bills Live is the show. Chris Brown, Chris Trapasso with you. Steve off for the day. Chris in to help us out. And uh, holy mackerel, is stuff flying around today. I mean, we had an anticipation, Chris, that with the owners' meetings, there were going to be some newsworthy things coming out of there. And we'll get to the Bill stuff first. Uh, but there is an atom bomb that got dropped by Lamar Jackson, which we'll get into a little bit later. And he dropped it directly on what could be his former head coach of the Baltimore Ravens, John Harbaugh. We'll get into that in due course. First things first. Sean McDermott with a very interesting comment right out of the shoot when he was asked about defensive play calling. As we know, Leslie Frazier taking a year off from football and coaching, and it was up in the air as to what the final decision would be about a month ago at the Combine when Coach McDermott was asked who's going to take over play calling duties. He pretty much revealed today it's going to be him doing it. So that's pretty pretty big. Yeah, it's big, and, and I think at this point – of Sean McDermott's head coaching career, going to be his seventh year with the Bills. He can handle it. What I'm going to be watching most, though, is how that impacts, if at all, his in-game management. Is he still the good, aggressive play caller on the other side of the ball um, in terms of going forward on fourth downs, um, deciding when when to punt, when not to punt, field goals, things like that. What's good, though, is that most of those decisions are on the offensive side. So he can focus on the defensive side when the Bills are on defense. When it's offense, he's certainly planning ahead to the next drive, but we're still able to do both. If this was first or second season for Sean McDermott as a head coach, I'd be a little leery. Can he handle all this on his plate? Year seven, spending multiple years, you know, decades as an assistant in the NFL before landing in Buffalo. I think he is the man for the job to be able to do all of these things, game planning and then calling the plays along with making those in-game decisions on game day. And I know just being around town and talking to some fans about this, because I don't think any of us are surprised. (laughs) No, not at all. That Sean has decided to call the plays on defense once we saw Leslie Frazier step aside. This just seemed like a natural way for things to go, especially to your point with him now being in year seven as head coach. He knows how the game day operations are going to run. He can probably delve into play calling again on an active down-in, down-out basis. I think the the main concern, at least that I hear from fans, is, well, how's he going to be able to manage the game when he's talking to his defensive players when the defense is off the field and the offense is on the field? He should still be paying attention. I think that's where he turns to his defensive staff. And a guy like Al Holcomb, sure. who was brought on as a senior defensive assistant, or maybe John Butler, who has been a coordinator in his past, or Eric Washington, the D-line coach who's been a D.C. in his past. Maybe one of those guys is kind of bringing them up and talking about adjustments, and Sean may just say in his ear, hey, let's talk to them about A, B, and C before they're on the field again. And he watches the game and remains in the head coaching role while those guys take care of that between series, right? That's kind of how I anticipate it. And that's why it's so important to have – assistants on your staff that have coordinator experience that have been in the NFL for a long time. They are very experienced. All those names that you just mentioned that are now on the bill staff um, in terms of the logistics of what happens before the game, any adjustments during halftime, in-game adjustments, drive-to-drive adjustments. He's going to have to lean on that more than he did in the past where the last five years it was Leslie Frazier's there, he's running the defense. That's exactly how it will have to go with Sean McDermott, and he has created a staff that he can do that. I think what also helps him is 
the fact that you have veterans, you know, whether it's Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde, you know, running the back end of that thing. You don't have Tremaine Edmonds in the middle of it anymore, which can lend to, you know, bring us into a whole other conversation about how they fill that. And McDermott was asked about that today as well out at the owners' meetings in Arizona, and we'll kind of shed some light on what he said in just a second. But you have veteran players up and down the roster on the defensive side of the ball who have been in this system multiple years, and I think that facilitates this kind of a move as well because you have guys on the field who know this defense like the back of their hand. Yeah, it kind of just aligns with what I said earlier, that this is Sean McDermott's seventh season in Buffalo, Matt Milano, Jordan Poyer, Micah Hydeback, Tredavious White, Tredavious, exactly. Aaron Johnson, I mean, we're talking four or five years in this defense. This is strategic, I think, for the Bills. It, it, it certainly was kind of thrust on them with Frazier kind of stepping down or stepping aside for a year. But it makes sense. It's not too much for the Bills players or Sean McDermott because of all the experience in the Sean McDermott defense. And for as much as Leslie Frazier, of course, was the defensive coordinator calling the plays, Sean McDermott had a hand in the defense over the last five or six years in terms of installing game game plans, deciding what they were going to do against each opponent. So it's not like a completely new endeavor for Sean McDermott. Just so everyone knows exactly how Coach McDermott phrased it, I have most of what he said here. He said he's very confident in the staff that we have. We've been working well together, and I'm encouraged by that. We're not going to go outside to fill that role. At this point, I'm going to be the play caller. At the same time, I have a ton of confidence in the guys around me that if I need to toss it to them from time to time, I can do that. Mm. So he hasn't ruled out the possibility of, hey, this game's going sideways here, and I've got to help the guys on offense a little bit more to come up with solutions as to what that defense is throwing at him. You know, Al, take the defense here for the next two series. You're calling plays, mm-hmm. and he's got, you know, he's going to focus his att- It sounds like he's left himself open to focus his, his attention as the head coach where it needs to be in a particular game on a particular day. And you mentioned Al Holcomb. He's the newcomer to this coaching staff. But John Butler's been here multiple seasons. Eric Washington was with Sean McDermott in Carolina, mm-hmm. been here for multiple seasons. So, again, it's not just, hey, let's bring in a bunch of coordinators or former coordinators to be assistants here. It's guys that know the system that Sean McDermott has experience with that came in with a pretty strong understanding of Sean McDermott's philosophy, what he wants to do defensively, his tendencies. So that is something that – Seems like maybe an emergency situation that you wouldn't necessarily want to delve into, but you could because, again, the familiarity between these coaches and Sean McDermott. Yeah, because he even went so far as to say, if we find it's not working, then I'll turn it over because I'm very confident in the people in the room. So it sounds like he's like, look, I'm going to run this thing on the defensive side. We'll see how it goes. And if it goes well, I'll just keep on doing it. If it doesn't, well, then I may look to turn it over to somebody and I'll just reassume head coaching duties only and weigh in where I need to weigh in. Uh, somebody was asking him how much it might change from what Leslie Frazier did for the better part of the last six seasons. And he said, everyone has their own signature on their way of doing things. I learned years ago that unless you really do it yourself, it's never going to be exactly the same because people are different. I mean, that's logical to assume. Um, and I do know there were a couple of instances during Leslie Frazier's tenure here where Sean would step in and, and seize the play calling from him from a series or two. Sometimes it was just an exercise in trying to change up tendencies a little bit mm-hmm. because it's a different person calling yeah. it. And there were other times where 
It was like, I don't like the way this is going. I'm stepping in for two or three series here to try to right the ship because we're getting beat on this play or this scheme, and we got to adjust to that, and I'm going to do it my way. And he's done that from time to time. Beyond just being uh, his own man who's going to just have his own ideas, um, I think with the game always evolving, I think Sean McDermott understands that, that he's never been a, this is my way and I'm not changing. And the Bills personnel is different. I think at times, if Von Miller's out there on the field, they probably don't need to bliss as much. If he's not on the field, then they probably do. So to say, hey, this is exactly how the Bills defense is going to look and here's the disparity between McDermott and Leslie Frazier, it's too early to say. And until we see how this Bills roster shakes out, how it's able to handle opponents earlier early in the season, we're probably not going to know until that actually plays out. Right. And I'm kind of reminded as we're hearing this now with Coach McDermott basically saying, I'm calling the plays going forward into next season. I'm kind of reminded of the the soundbite that came out from Ron Rivera at the NFL Combine. We were there. I know you were there as well because we had you on the show. And Rivera was asked, if Sean takes over play calling, what would you expect? And he said, I expect him to be very aggressive, which was a very interesting take Mm. because – I think if you ask most Bills fans, they would probably say Leslie Frazier. They wouldn't use that word in describing no. Leslie Frazier as a play caller. Well, that just kind of goes back to the point that I just made. If if Von Miller is healthy, Gregory Rousseau is out there, the Bills address anything in terms of depth on the defensive line, they don't need to blitz that much. Right. And any defensive coordinator, the most aggressive defensive coordinator in the NFL, um, Wink Martindale is usually the guy in New York that blitzes the most, would say – if we're getting home with four, we are totally fine just dropping seven in right. coverage. It, you know, whether it's man or press man or zone, that's to- a totally different story. But I think Sean McDermott, to that point, he can be aggressive. If it calls for it where the defensive line is not getting home as frequently as possible, then I think it's in the cards for him. He's done that. He's had Carolina Panthers defenses that were good but weren't that great getting after the quarterback that you look at those blitz rates, they're pretty high. Yeah. I don't know if they're ever going to be the blitz happiest team in the NFL, but like I said earlier, I think he's willing to evolve in a given season and to cater to the type of talent and the overall roster makeup that they uh, Bills have on the defensive side. Yeah, and when Sean was in Carolina as the D.C., they usually ranked high in sacks, and they ranked pretty high in takeaways. Those were kind of two things that ran – parallel to one another mm-hmm. during McDermott's tenure there. As a matter of fact, I was looking it up. I think his last season in Carolina as the D.C. in 2016, even though they kind of collapsed after their Super Bowl run in 2015, they were still third in sacks in 2016. Pretty impressive uh, with that roster beginning to decay. Uh, Adam Schefter with some news today on Bill's additions. Free agent safety Taylor Rapp of the L.A. Rams visited with the New England Patriots He is reportedly going to sign a one-year deal with the Bills, however, as the Bills try to augment their safety ranks. You know, it was just a couple of weeks ago that the only guy under contract was Micah Hyde. They had nobody else at safety under contract. (laughs) Now, a lot has changed since then because they tendered Cam Lewis, the restricted free agent, and they also, uh, well, Jaquan Johnson signed elsewhere, I think with the Raiders, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. And then they also got Poyer back, which was huge. And then they just had, I'm trying, where's my free agent list? I already forgot uh, who the other, I thought there was another addition at safety that I'm, that's slipping my mind, but I could be wrong because I've got to be more prepared than this, Chris. I I don't remember. I don't think. Let me see. 
I might be thinking of somebody else. Demar Hamlin's obviously. Oh, I'm thinking. Never mind. I'm thinking of Dane Jackson. Dane Jackson. He's a corner. Yep, he's um, that he tendered him. Okay, so they're going to augment that and add a veteran player who's like a a starter. I mean, this is a starting caliber safety with the Rams. I love Taylor Rapp. I always go back to my draft evaluation coming out of Washington a few drafts ago in terms of versatility and at the safety position, you know this, Chris, versatility is the name of the game, especially in this Bills defense. There's not really a true free safety and a true strong safety. You need to be able to do a lot of different things and play both positions. That is the book on Taylor Rapp when he was coming out of Washington, very productive there. And he's been a very versatile, multi-tool player on some good Rams defenses, only turns 26 in December. And in this, you were just talking about that um, Sean McDermott's defense in Carolina kind of fell apart after the Super Bowl. We certainly saw that last year with the Rams. Taylor Rapp was one of the lone bright spots outside of Aaron Donald on that defense. To me, a one-year deal for Taylor Rapp, who's only 25 years old, Kind of screams of, the Bills want to bring him in. They can't sign him to a very lucrative multi-year deal now. They were able to sell him on how good the team is, how established the defense is, and would like to ultimately re-sign him after the season like they've done with John Feliciano and Darrell Williams in the past. They even did it with Jordan Poyer. They extended him for more of a long-term solution after 2023, given the ages of Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde. Right, and I think the only reason – because people might be out there saying, well, how, why the heck did he not take more money somewhere else? If he's this good, why is he agreeing to a one-year deal? Because it's a depressed safety market. Very much There was so. like 18 starters who were free agents in the safety market this year. That oversupply reduced demand yeah. and brought the price down on a number of people. This guy, in a year where maybe he only had six starting safeties out there, this guy's a first day of the market opening signing. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the caliber of player you're talking about here. But because you had 18 starters out there. I mean, think about this. Cincinnati Bengals go to the AFC title game. Both of their starting safeties gone. were free agents this year. Not just one of them. Both of them. And they're both gone, by the way. Um, you know, so you look. that's just one small example. But there were 18 starting safeties hitting the market at the same time this offseason, and it drove down the price precipitously. I think it's a big reason why Poyer's back here. Exactly. Because he realized, well, I'm not going to get the money I was hoping for elsewhere. I might as well go go back to where I like playing as long as the money is at least fair. And I think Taylor Rapp's in a similar situation here. It's week three of free agency. He still doesn't have a team, and he's just like, well, I guess I'll just have to line up somewhere for a year and then go back in the market next year and see if I can maximize my value there. And in this depressed market, I think he realizes this is probably not going to be the case next year. And he understands, like, not necessarily that it would be a redshirt-type season, but if he plays well in this Bills defense, which has been one of the steadiest defenses in the Sean McDermott era over the last six seasons, then suddenly, again, because of the age of Hyde and Poyer, now there's a starting full-time safety role that will garner him to get legitimate starter safety money on a Super Bowl caliber team. So it seems like, hey, where is he going to play? How is he going to do this? You're right that the money being lower, he probably said, I'll just sign this one-year deal. I'll only be 26 next year. I can sign a two- or three- or four-year deal in Buffalo afterward and just take over one of the starting safety spots. Yeah. And, you know, it's a great addition. And, you know. They needed depth, too. Well, they needed depth. 
it's pretty nice when you get depth with a starting caliber player. I mean, this guy was a second round pick. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's not like some schlep that's still twisting out there in free agency. There's so much supply at the safety position. The Bills are the beneficiaries here. And I, I kind of liken this to, you know, back when Bean signed Mitchell Trubisky as a backup quarterback. Here's a guy out there that's looking to reset his career mm-hmm. after, you know, falling out of favor in Chicago. Maybe the circumstances are different because Taylor Rapp was a, more than a capable starting defensive back in the league for a Super Bowl winning football team. Um, but circumstances had him wash out in terms of demand. And, you know, you swoop in and sign the guy and add him to your roster. Now, if, God forbid, Jordan Poyer misses more games due to injury, as, you know, we know he missed five games last year, or, God forbid, it's Micah Hyde, because they were without both those guys, and it changed his defense precipitously. You've got this guy in reserve? Holy cow. Like, you're in really good shape now. Yeah, I was just going to bring that point up that, I mean, every team, every GM will say, hey, we need more depth here, we need more depth there. The Bills lived through uh, their lack of safety depth last season or – when they had to play multiple backup safeties, I always think back to that early Dolphins game yeah. where, where it was Hamlin and Jaquan Johnson out there. And suddenly, it's like we've never seen the Bills give up big plays in the last five years. With yeah. Poyer and, and Hyde back there, they were always at the top or near the top of the league in limiting 20-plus yard plays. And that game, that long throw down the middle of the field Third and twenty-two to Jalen Waddell that ultimately kind of ended the game. Yeah. I was like, how is this happening? Oh, wait, it's because it's backup safeties out there. So to be able to plug in a Taylor Rapp, use him, and maybe some three safety looks, that would not be a bad idea. Um, the Bills lived through it, and I think they're like, well, kind of what you were saying, third week of free agency, 25-year-old starter, um, very productive. It's unheard of. It it really is, and your point to the depressed safety market financially I think is the main uh, catalyst for this. Eight interceptions, 36 pass breakups in his career. Very productive player. They said, hey, look, if we do get to a time where maybe Jordan Poyer, like in the playoffs, he's playing, he's not 100%. Maybe we'll feel better putting out a 26-year-old safety out there and rotate a little bit more than say, hey, Jordan, you're going to try to play at 70% today. To have someone, a starting caliber player at safety, a very important position in this Sean McDermott defense that's been so steady and so durable up until last season for the Bills makes a lot of sense. And to get Taylor Rapp this late, didn't think it was going to happen. I thought he was going to sign with the Patriots. To hear this news right before the show added more to what's going to be a jam-packed yeah. show over the and next the team, couple hours. And the team hasn't you know, confirmed the signing, but that's what Adam Schefter is reporting. So we'll wait for the team to officially confirm it. But this guy doesn't even turn 26 until Christmas. Like his <laughs> birthday's in December, like late December. So – He's a 25-year-old. It's unbelievable. You're getting a guy entering the prime of his career. at that, It's just – it's it's a coup, quite frankly. It's a coup. Uh, before we move on to other subjects, we do want to let you know our Twitter poll today. It's pretty straightforward, basically, with the news of the day. Sean McDermott said he's going to be calling defensive plays. What impact do you think that has on how this defense performs this season? You let us know at 803-0550, the number to get on board. We should also mention to you that in hour number two, we're going to be joined by NFL Network draft analyst Bucky Brooks, who recently released his top five prospects at every position. So we'll be chopping that up with Bucky in hour number two. Look forward to that conversation. As for other Bills news and notes, we know they are scheduled to meet free agent visit with Calais Campbell who met with the Atlanta Falcons already. Apparently that went very well. Anytime a six foot eight, 
defensive tackle who's 36 years old and still plays like he's 28, you'd be pretty excited no yeah. matter what team you are. Yeah. Yeah. And this guy is an absolute anomaly to father time at the defensive tackle position. I mean, he's still a quality player. He's supposed to visit with the, with the Bills and the Jets this week. So we'll see what comes of it. But, my God, like, you had that guy. He can still play. He can still really play, and he's an anomaly size-wise too. Six foot eight defensive tackle. You're supposed to get out leveraged and, and pushed out of the way, and he's one of the strongest players still. I think at the position in the NFL, you can watch Calais Campbell film even from last year at 35 years old, and he is moving guards and centers. I think the interesting point, and there's connections all over the league. He's been in the league for over a decade now. A mentor to Gregory Rousseau. They both went to the University yeah. of Miami. There could be a little connection there. I think we've all spoke a lot about the mentorship with Von Miller to uh, Gregory Rousseau. This could be another one, a wily player that's been around for a long time, been a high-caliber elite player, and is still very good even at 36 um, in the trenches. This would be a big addition to the interior of the Bills' defensive line, which I do think does, again, need some depth and some more pieces up front. Right, and I think... The, the way that the Bills play with their rotational system, the wear and tear on a 36-year-old player isn't as severe. Uh, not to mention the fact that I think Calais Campbell will be the first to tell you, I got no problem leaving the AFC North. I mean, that is a big boy, <laughs> yeah. grind it out, line of scrimmage, pound the tar out of each other division, whether it's Cincinnati, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, yeah. I mean, it is rock'em, sock'em football in that division. So for a guy that's looking for greener pastures, just about anything looks less daunting in terms of being taxing on your body than playing in the AFC North. I mean, it is rock'em, sock'em football every week in that division. And this would be kind of an interesting scenario, another like anomaly where pitching to a free agent, hey, you're not going to have to play that much. I think for a six foot eight, 300 and, or 36-year-old uh, defensive tackle that's certainly been – beat up over the last decade plus in the NFL showing those percentages to say Sean McDermott never has defensive linemen that play over 60% of the snaps. Yeah. They're the most rotation heavy defensive line in the NFL. That actually is a situation where it would probably be more enticing to a free agent as opposed to normally free agents want to come in and play a thousand snaps, get the most out of their money. I think Calais Campbell could maybe say, Hey, look, I I'm cool with playing half the snaps and really maximizing my talents here at the twilight of my career. The other news that Sean McDermott was asked about in Arizona concerned DeMar Hamlin. Judy Batista had some tweets over the weekend because she got a hold of Sean uh, on Sunday out there, a day earlier prior to the rest of the media getting a hold of him. And he kind of reiterated some of those comments today. He basically said he is hopeful that DeMar Hamlin can play, but will support his decision, whatever it is, which will obviously be based on advice of a number of doctors and specialists. And then he said, because it is unprecedented for us, some of the process in making that decision is out of the Bills' hands. This isn't a Bills' decision. This is a DeMar Hamlin decision at its core. He said, so we're going to continue to be his secondary support as opposed to the primary support, which is coming obviously from his family, and then the doctors and specialists that are working with him with all of the testing that he's been undergoing for the last several months. And then McDermott finished by saying, we're praying for him and hopeful that everything turns out okay. The other news and notes that he brought up, the middle linebacker competition, which is now wide open, his words, 
Dodson, Bernard, Spector will compete for it. He said they deserve a shot. We'll see where it goes. We'll also see if they add somewhere, whether it's free agent veteran or in the draft. And he did admit it's important. It's an important spot. (laughs) It's the center of the defense, a big leadership piece. He said a lot of leading by example. It's a unique position because of the responsibility that comes with it beyond making your own plays, lining everyone up, knowing how we want to look defensively. He said it's a lot for a young player, but there's a first time for everyone. I mean, they had a 19-year-old, 20-year-old running <laughs> yeah. it five years ago in Tremaine Edmonds. So he said we'll see how the old, the whole thing unfolds, but he said it will be an open competition. Yeah, I think this is going to have to be in the draft. This is just pure speculation, but Sean McDermott's coaching career, which we talked about earlier, he's had Luke Keekley, who if he would have continued to play, would have been a first ballot Hall right. of Famer, I think. And then, and, and he's big and athletic and was so cerebral. Then 19-year-old Tremaine Edmonds, who I think intelligence-wise on the field was well ahead of being a 19-year-old, big, long, and athletic. I think it's a key position in Sean McDermott's defense. Right. He's had two highly capable cover linebackers that are big, long, and athletic and can wear that dot on the helmet and get the signals and call the plays to the players in the huddle. So it's certainly a key role. They have some depth there that he mentioned, but I think in the draft or maybe one of these week three free agents that are still out there at the linebacker spot, they have to add to that position to play next to Matt Milano. Right. And if you look at who they have right now, those players we mentioned, Terrell Bernard, you know, second-year player, Balen Spector, second-year player, seventh-round draft choice, and Tyrell Dotson, undrafted player, um, and what is he third year now or no, this is his fourth. This fourth will be year. his fourth season. So you've got players that have been worked in there a little bit here and there with, I think, admittedly mixed results. Mm-hmm. So do they swing for an elite player in the draft that can slide in there? Be- not only because of the athleticism being off the charts, but has a proven body of work in terms of production. Not that Bernard didn't or Spectre didn't or anybody else, but do they look to upgrade the spot rather than leave it up to the forces of competition in training camp with the three guys that we mentioned? Uh, 803-0550, 1-888-550-2550, the number to get on board. Got an open line for you there. Sean McDermott is your defensive play caller. How do you think it will impact Buffalo's defense? Let's go to the phones, and leading us off today – is Mark in Erie, PA. What do you got for us, Mark, here on One Bills Live? Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I do not really like it, only just from the fact that, obviously, Coach McDermott's a really good leader, and I know he's involved with uh, game day prep all over the board, and he's obviously intertwined throughout the organization. And just looking around the league, like guys that call plays and successful coaches like Sean McVay, or even um, Kyle Shanahan out in San Francisco, you know, they've had veterans on the other side of the ball that have kind of taken care of that whole side. So for the Bills to go into the year with a second-year offensive coordinator that obviously had mixed results, depending on who you ask, um, I don't know if I necessarily love it. Obviously, it'd be easier if Frazier was there, but I think there's guys on the staff that he knows and trusts. So I would rather have them call the plays and then him step in where needed. But just want to get your opinion on that, and thanks for taking my call, guys. So real quick, Mark, just so I understand it, it's not that you don't believe that McDermott is a proven play caller. You're worried about him handling too much on game day. Is that the crux of your issue? Yes, absolutely. He's obviously a proven proven play caller. I just – 
again, with all the other things that go into game day planning, I just would rather have him, you know, take care of that. Cause obviously the bills have been very successful. Second most wins since he's come into the league behind the Kansas city chiefs. Um, I kind of want to keep that the way it was. Right. Okay. Thanks Mark for the call. Appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're concerned like, because mu- much like the Ken Dorsey thing last year, Chris, you're in a position where you're saying, well, yeah, he's a proven play caller and the bills are the second winningest team since he's taken over next to the Kansas city chiefs, but can he do both? And it's an unknown. And I I think that's where a lot of this concern stems from. Yeah. And I think too, the progression of Sean McDermott's in-game management, he's gotten so much better from like the first couple of years as a head coach when there was some concern that he wasn't aggressive enough, he wasn't going for it on fourth down enough. Really since 2019, 2020, they've been near the top of the league in terms of going by the analytics book, when to go for it, um, when to punt, when to kick the field goal, and they've been one of the more aggressive teams in the league. I can't envision a scenario where suddenly because Sean McDermott is now calling the defensive plays, which he's done before in Buffalo for eight years in Carolina and Philadelphia before that, where suddenly they're just super conservative. They're punting the ball on every fourth and two. I I think with Josh Allen being in Buffalo, they've understood, like, we needed to make this shift to become more aggressive as the quarterback has gotten so much better and can convert those fourth and threes or even fourth and fives and longer. That was really my initial thought, is are they going to continue to be aggressive? I think they will. Yeah, I think, and we'll talk about this on the other side, and it's a question that's fair to be asked, was this move made – to assist the quarterback more because the constant the constant complaint from a number of people and I even raised this it's at some time at some points last season are they asking Josh too much to be Superman every single week and maybe McDermott took a long look at this and said well maybe I can help our superstar quarterback if I'm calling the plays on the defensive side of the ball. Something to chew on here as we take a break, but when we come back, more of your phone calls at 803-0550, 1-888-550-2550. Open line for you there. Sean McDermott is Buffalo's defensive play caller for this coming season. What kind of impact do you think it has, and how do you feel about it? You let us know. We'll take a break here, but Chris and I back with more on the other side here on One Bills Live, presented by Collider Health. It's Buffalo Bills Radio. All right, welcome back to One Bills Live. Chris Brown, Chris Trapasso with you here on this Monday. Steve off today. And we're talking about Sean McDermott's announcement that he will be calling the defensive plays for the Bills this coming season. Not necessarily a tremendous surprise, but what kind of impact do you think it will have on Buffalo's defense this season? You can let us know at 803-0550-1888-550-2550, the number to get on board. We have open lines for you there, or you can hit us up on the tweet sheet at One Bills Live. We talked about this as we went to the break, some of the impetus for this decision. And as much as maybe Coach McDermott wants to put his stamp on the defense with his play calling, you have to wonder also if this is an exercise in helping his quarterback out more on the offensive side of the ball. And Chris and I were even talking about this during the break. If you look at their last few playoff runs, maybe with the exception of the Cincinnati game this past January, scoring points and offense was not the issue at hand. It was stopping the other teams from scoring themselves. And so you wonder if if McDermott says to himself, 
if I'm calling this the way I want to call it and not leaving it up to my D.C. to kind of handle the critical plays, maybe we can get a few more stops, prevent a few more scoring drives, and help my quarterback so he doesn't have to do everything all the time. Yeah, and I think for the playoffs, it's like the Bills over the last five to six years been one of the top teams, regardless of what you're looking at, points allowed, yards, DVOA from football outsiders, any of the analytics, the playoffs haven't been nearly as good because in the playoffs you're facing Joe Burrow, you're facing Patrick Mahomes. They haven't seen Justin Herbert yet. They'll probably see him at some point. The Dolphins offense that has playmakers all over the place. You kind of have to tweak your philosophy for those games. It's Mm -hmm. not facing even an average or slightly above average team. Those are the best teams in the conference, and most of the good quarterbacks in today's NFL happen to be in the AFC. So this could be McDermott taking a step back and saying, we need to do things a little differently in those big regular season games against the Chiefs and the Bengals, uh, things like that, inside the own division with the Dolphins, with the Jets, if certainly there's Aaron Rodgers there, but also the playoffs where maybe we don't have to lean on not necessarily just Josh Allen running the ball, but just the offense as a whole, like to not have to score 34 points or 42 points to win a playoff game. I get it. In today's NFL, there's going to be yards accumulated. There will be points scored. You're not going to win a lot of playoff games 14-7 to anymore or even 17-14. But to maybe only allow like 21 points or 24 points with Josh Allen's offense and what he can do, that's probably the idea that Sean McDermott wants to have a more hands-on approach for those critical games against the best offenses in the NFL. And I think that's where the ire of the fan base was at the end of this past season more of the complaints came on the defensive side of the ball. People said, well, this defense is all well and good during the regular season, but we get to the playoffs and we can't stop anybody. Now, you are playing a higher caliber of opponent. That's what the playoffs are. But at the same time, yeah, there were times where you felt like, my God, they can't stop anybody right now. What's going on? And it looked way too easy for the Bengals in that divisional playoff, again, I think there were other issues at work there, namely that they just didn't have the mental focus that they needed to have to play a playoff game because of all that DeMar had sapped from them emotionally and mentally. Uh, and we don't need to go down that road again. We all know what happened, and I, I have an opinion on how I feel it impacted the team, and I thought after it happened, this team had no chance of winning the Super Bowl because mentally they couldn't get into a f- mindset that they needed to to play effective football down in and down out. There was just too much going on in their heads that distracted them. And I think once they saw the Bengals take the field again, it was almost like PTSD because it took them right back to the last time they were on the field with the Bengals. And I just think nobody wanted – Matt Milano said it after the game himself. I just don't think we had any juice today. And it's like, how do you not have juice for a divisional playoff? I think the Hamlin thing was a main reason for that. But that doesn't mean that defensive play calling couldn't be more creative, more sound, more effective – and I think that's, that's the step that Coach McDermott is taking here um, with this decision to be calling the plays himself. So let's go to the phones and see what you think. We'll go to David in Buffalo next. David, you're on One Bills Live. What do you got for us? Hey, yes. Um, I just want people to remember that this guy, he was a defensive coordinator before he became a coach. Right. So it ain't like he don't know what to do. And like I said once, I said twice, if you don't believe in him, then y'all step aside. Don't say get rid of this or get rid of that. Let the man put himself forward and see what go down. Thank you, bro. All right. Appreciate the phone call, David. So there's a guy that's in favor of it uh, without question. And he's right. I mean, you mentioned it already. The guy was a co- he was a coordinator at a very young age Yeah, in, in Philadelphia. 30s. He was like a wonderkind mm-hmm. uh, when he was in Philly. 
and then you know goes down to Carolina, has similar success, part of an NFC title team down there as well after the run of success with Andy Reid in Philly. So it's a proven track record, and as David pointed out, it's why he got a head coaching job in the first place. Exactly. So pretty crazy. Let's go to Doug in Tonawanda next. What do you got for us, Doug? Thanks, guys, for having me on. I just think he should designate someone to be in that D.C. Uh, position. I think it's too much for a head coach to uh, cover offense and defense. Uh, I mean, the whole whole uh, uh, scheme of the of the game. What do you guys think? So you're worried about – you're talking about all the planning during the week and all of that stuff. Is that what you're talking yep. about, Doug, even yep. more than the play calling? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that's where he leans on his staff, Chris. Exactly. Like, you know – he might be in the defensive meetings, but maybe Al Holcomb's running them or Eric Washington is running them up at the front of the room after getting, you know, debriefed on everything with his head coach, right? I mean, that's probably how it's going to go. Yeah, and I could see this just being as simple as Sean McDermott has all the respect in the world for, for Leslie Frazier. He did a great job in Buffalo really managing these defenses over the last five to six years into being one of the best groups in the league. And it's maybe just like, but it's just not quite good enough in the playoffs. I want to be, as the head coach, I'm using my power to say I want my hands on this more so than letting someone else do that. And like you mentioned, that's how he got the head coaching job. That's his area of expertise. I just feel like that's what Sean McDermott's doing here. The situation presented itself where Frazier steps aside, and now instead of saying, all right, I'm going to hand it off to someone else again, I'm going to now take the reins here on the defensive side. Right. I I think he's got – a certain level of trust with the men on his staff. But I think in light of what has happened in the last few years in the playoffs, exits maybe even earlier than they anticipated, um, divisional round each of the last two years, I think he's it's a control thing. And he says, well, I know that these guys are capable. I have faith that they could do the job. But we got to get to the promised land here with the window we're in. And I know for certain that if I'm calling it what I can expect. Exactly. Because I know me better than I know anybody else. (laughs) So I know what I would do in this situation. So I'm going to put myself in that situation, and hopefully the team is better for it. Let's go back to the phones, and we go to Rich in West Seneca next. What do you got for us, Rich? Hey, guys. um, my, uh, My question is this. Sean is a proven defensive coordinator. He's a proven head coach. Um, I'm just a fan, but I talk with other fans, and they talk about how noticeably, we talk about how noticeably tight Sean appears to be in some of those playoff games that we've had in recent years. He got us there. I get it. But I just wonder the stress of, you know, being the head coach and also calling the defensive plays, how that, how that's going to play out. So and are just, you worried? I'll hang up and listen. Yeah. So rich, before you do, I just want to make sure we're understanding you. So you're worried about him swinging a little more conservatively come playoff time. Is that the issue here? I, I think, I think it's more. He seems to, I, I know this is going to sound wrong, but he seems to lose it a little bit in those, those high, high energy situations in the playoffs. He's he, like, I don't know if it's a lack of focus or whatever. And this guy's a great coach. I'm not saying he's not. I just, I don't know, guys. I just wondered with the added pressure of being the D coordinator along with the head coach, 
what that's going to look like. I, I no question about his, his skill as a D coordinator. Okay. All right. I think I know where you're coming from now. So, again, we're worried about it being too much. Not that he's not capable, but will his capabilities be compromised because there's too much on his plate? That goes back to my kind of earlier micro point that in terms of in-game management, I think the vast majority of those decisions are on the offensive side where I could see someone saying, Hey, look, he's going to have to be on the bench talking to the defensive line while the offense is on the field. But again, I think that's where you lean on these coaches that not only have experience in the NFL, but have previously established relationships with Sean McDermott to say, Hey, look, go talk to the defensive line. We need to do this differently on the next drive. This is the last two minutes of the half. I need to see if we need to challenge a call or if we need to go for it or we're kicking a field goal, whatever the case may be. And if he's maybe taking a step back and looking at the entire situation, the entire organization, that that might be something that he can look in himself and say, maybe I do need to be a little bit more aggressive with Josh Allen in the playoffs to not punt it or to not kick field goals in those situations. Right. And I think he's learned from his own mistakes, Quite frankly, the AFC title game in 2020, they're on the two-yard line, and they elect to kick the field goal before the half, and they wind up paying for it instead of trying to go for a touchdown against a high-octane offense that's going to get theirs more often than not and proved it in every round of the playoffs that year. You know, he probably, looking back on that, said, i got to be more aggressive in the postseason, and the next year he was. Um, So I think he's a guy that's self-aware enough to learn from his own mistakes and learn when – he didn't make his best call and how to be better for it going forward. So that's what encourages me with that. Um, we do have to take a break here. There's other Bills news. A third set of stadium renderings are out. If you saw them, what do you think of them? You can weigh in on that as well. 803-0551-888-550-2550, the number to get on board. Chris and I take a break. Back with that and more on Sean McDermott as your new defensive play caller. We'll see you in a second here on One Bills Live, presented by Collider Health. It's Buffalo Bills Radio. Back here on One Bills Live, Chris Brown, Chris Trapasso on a Monday. And in addition to all the stuff that came down at the owners' meetings, there's a new set of stadium renderings that were also released. If you haven't seen them yet, you can go check them out on buffalobills.com. In addition to some of the exterior shots of the stadium, and I got to tell you, it looks majestic. It looks awesome. Um, Some of the interior photos are ones that we have seen before, but there are some concourse area shots that are of particular interest. And looking at some of the adornments up in the rafter areas of some of the concourse sections where there are like open bars and all of that stuff, uh, there is branding (laughs) out the wazoo. Like (laughs) you could get dropped into this stadium out of the sky and you will immediately know you are at a Bills game, which is just what, you know, ownership and management is driving at. They want you to know unequivocally you are in the Bills stadium at a Bills game. And all along, we've heard Executive Vice President Ron Recuia state this is going to be a football-first facility. It's not only going to be a football-first facility, it's going to be a Buffalo Bills football-first facility. Yeah, everything with like the decor in the concourses for it to be very uh, fan-forward, it makes sense because to me, like over the last 10 years, Bills Mafia has like become the most famous 
fan base in the entire NFL. Yeah. That there's certainly a lot of other teams, the Packers, the Steelers that travel well. In terms of having a name Bills Mafia and how well they travel and all the tailgating scene, every Bills game, all the national stuff, Monday night football, Sunday night football, there's always like some dedication to the to the Bills fan, to the Bills Mafia. So to have that inside the stadium, I think is just perfectly aligned with how much the Bills and their fans have kind of come together and are so aligned over the last 10 or so years, especially from a national perspective. Yeah, should be pretty cool. Uh, some of the common areas where fans can congregate, because as we've heard Ron Recuia say also, no matter where you are in a concourse, there will be viewing of the field from wherever you are. So you're never like separated from the game action, even if you go up to get a beer or something. Yeah, I think the concourses are the biggest thing because the seats and the field aren't going to look way like drastically different. Yeah. It's going to be the same setup. Being in other stadiums around the league just that are newer than obviously the current Highmark Stadium, just wider concourses with, you said, more, more drink availability, food availability. That was the biggest driver, I think, in, in terms of what's exciting people, how it's going to look when you go to the bathroom, when you go to get a drink, and not only the adornments, but just having more um, amenities inside those concourses, having them be wider so it's not as crowded getting in and out of the stadium. That's what I think should be very exciting beyond just the outside. When well, you're in yeah. the stadium, it's going to look But awesome. even when you do that, like here at Highmark, you're separated from the game yes, action. for sure. And I don't think that's going to be the case. No matter where you are in the building, you'll still be able to see the field, at least from what I've been told, um, even in the concourse areas. That's so nice. when, you, when you step away from your seat – to go get whatever you need to get or take care of whatever you need to care of, take care of, uh, you should still have view of the field, which is kind of a cool concept. And I don't know how the heck they're doing it, but I'm not an engineer, so it's not <laughs> for me to worry about. But let's go to the phones, and we go to James in Cheektowaga next. What do you got for us, James? Hi, guys. Um, how you doing? Good. Good. Um, I, you guys answered what I had about um, the stadium, but I just wanted to ask about the future of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, am I right to be worried about not getting any big name players in free agency? Because I'm new to this whole winning thing from the team. I grew up when, you know, <laughs> Drew Bledsoe and JP Lossman. Got it. And um, I just feel like we're sitting around right now. Am I right to be worried or am I? No, I, I don't think it's. Rocker? Yeah, I don't think it's about worrying about the future of the team, James, it's, it's the fiscal issues that the team currently faces. There's limited cap space, so they can't throw money around like crazy. And we got a little spoiled last year because we were told, hey, probably no big swings in free agency. And then out of the blue, Von Miller drops out of the sky and is available. And we're like, ah, the cap doesn't matter. Let's have some fun. And people were, you know, everybody was stamping the Bills as a Super Bowl favorite at this time last year. And I understand why, but more often than not, this is going to be kind of the norm for the Bills because they are a good team with high-priced, elite talent players that gobble up large portions of the cap, leaving less for, I guess, what you would call the NFL's middle class. Mm -hmm. So now you resort to signing a bunch of players to one-year deals, and then you have your elite players at the other end of your financial picture. And that's kind of how it is now. Yeah, and like a lot of my friends have kind of had a similar question. So to answer it, what I've kind of already said to them is 
The Bills already have those big ticket guys. They have Josh yeah. Allen. They have Tredavious White, Stephon Diggs, Deion Miller, Von Miller, Deion Dawkins, Matt Milano, people that have made all pro teams, gotten MVP votes that are in the top 10 to 12 at their position. You have to sign those big ticket items to get to where the Bills are. They're already there. Building through the draft is going to be absolutely vital. And signing guys like Damian Harris to a one-year deal who can be that that uh, downhill kind of bell cow running back to pair with your young player in James Cook and Naheem Hines, Deontay Hardy to fill in that Isaiah McKenzie role. That's how the teams that have an established high-paid quarterback and elite players at premium positions like the Bills do no. have to fill out the rest of their roster. We got to take a break here, but a big hour number two coming your way, which is going to be kicked off with NFL Network draft analyst Bucky Brooks. He just released his top five players at every position in this year's draft pool. We're going to go over some of the perceived need positions of the Bills and go over some of those top guys when we return with Bucky Brooks here on One Bills Live, presented by Collider Health. It's Buffalo Bills Radio. Presented by Kaleida Health. All right, here we be. Hour number two. Chris Brown, Chris Trapasso with you on a Monday. One Bills Live is the show and pleased to be joined now by NFL Network draft analyst. He is hard at work this time of year, maybe more so than any other, chopping up the tape on prospects. It is the one and only Bucky Brooks. And uh, Bucky, first, thanks for giving us some time because we know you are busy this time of year. Holy crow, with all the stuff you're churning out on NFL.com, doing the Move the Sticks podcast on NFL Network, you know, chopping up the draft. Uh, have you had a chance to breathe here? Uh, yeah, this is a busy time of year, but it's a fun time of year because uh, after the Super Bowl, everyone gets an opportunity to reset, recalibrate, and then the optimism and the hope for the next Super Bowl champion starts <laughs> in earnest. Uh, and so it's been a, it's been a great run with free agency nearing uh, a conclusion, all eyes on the draft. And so this is a fun part of year. All right. So let's begin with a, still a perceived need position for the bills. All rumors about Deandre Hopkins trade aside uh, as there's a number of teams hoping to land him, I guess, uh, but Jackson Smith and Jigba is at the top of your wide receiver list in terms of your recently released top five by position in the draft class. A lot of people label him arguably the best route runner in the draft. Do you come down on the positive side of that argument? Absolutely. I'm with that. Uh, he reminds me very much of a young Stefan Diggs in terms of how Stefan Diggs is able to really win with precision and polish on the outside. Uh, this dude is, man, he is mature beyond his years when it comes to his route running ability, the diversity and the stuff that he puts in his routes. Worked primarily from the slot. Uh, didn't have a lot of production this year due to injury. But when you go back and watch the previous season, he is terrific. He works the middle of the field. He's fearless, great with the hands. Uh, I love the ball skills and those things. But 
This guy gets open. He gets open against any and all comers. He should be a fantastic pro. I have a question about another receiver, uh, Quentin Johnston from TCU. You have him as your number three wide receiver in this draft class. And really at the beginning of this pre-draft process, it kind of felt like he was going to be the first receiver off the board, nowhere close to where the Bills are picking later in the first round. Your colleague, your Move the Sticks podcast partner, Daniel Jeremiah, mocked Quentin Johnston to the Bills at 27 in his most recent mock draft. Why are you a little bit maybe lower on Quentin Johnston uh, than some other analysts? And do you think if he was there at 27, it would make sense just in terms of what he does on the field for the Bills to ultimately pick him? This receiver class is is difficult to evaluate because there's not what we call a true wide receiver one, meaning mm -hmm. a true number one receiver that when you pluck him, he's going to be the number one guy from day one. What you have is a lot of complementary pieces, meaning guys that you need to slot in certain roles. If you put them in those roles, they can certainly play at a high level and an all-star level even. Johnson is your speed guy. He's your straight line speed guy. He's big. He's fast. Uh, he has tremendous athleticism and tools. He's not necessarily a polished route runner, and he's what we call a body catcher, meaning you won't see him really extend and catch balls outside the strike zone with his hands. He prefers to cradle it. Uh, when you have guys that are like that, you almost have to account for a couple of drops here and there. Some of those drops may happen in key moments because that's who he is. He could exceed expectations, but you have to know at a floor level, at a basement level, uh, he's going to have some 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 drops and he's gonna have a tough time necessarily getting open running precise routes you got to keep him on the move to make him to put him in a position to be at his best one guy you had in between smith and jigba and johnston is a flowers the boston college kid um do you see him strictly as a slot because of the size or are there offenses this day and age that could have him do more than just that i think he can do more i think he can play all over the field uh, normally when you play slot, uh, that's the F position. That means you also are able to play Z, which is the flanker position, which puts you off the ball. So now you get to use space. You can have motion. You can do all these things to create opportunities for you to get off clean. Zay Flowers, to me, reminds me a lot of how uh, Antonio Brown used to play. Lots of energy, great creativity when it comes to his, his releases and how he gets open, terrific ball skills. Uh, he has all of that. He showcases all of that. Uh, when he's on the field, he's an elite, elite playmaker. And so I would expect him to have a lot of success because he can win using the craft, using route running skills, as opposed to just his pure, pure speed and athleticism. All right, so flesh that out for me a second here, Bucky, because you say creative with his releases. Just for, the, just for the fans out there, maybe explain what you're getting at there. Does that mean his releases have a wide-ranging repertoire, or is he just somebody who's clever in the way a defender might be lining up against him? He's clever in terms of playing against the leverage of the defender. So whether that's in bumper run early on, people playing outside, whether it's facing a DB in space and he's having to work uh, to the leverage of the, the defender's shoulder to kind of put him in a situation where he has to cover uh, multiple routes and thing. He has all of that. You saw him there catch a 50-50 ball. He has a lot of things that you just can't coach. You just can't coach someone to catch the ball like this in the open. You can't catch teach somebody how to – track these difficult balls over your left shoulder. I mean, he kind of has it. He, he's, he's a special player. All right, I want to switch to the defensive side of the ball because right now the Bills, I think, have a pretty cl clear, glaring need at the middle linebacker spot. You have Drew Sanders from Arkansas, the Alabama transfer, mm -hmm. 
at number one in your linebacker group. It's just an interesting group altogether, I think, because there's a lot of different flavors. Explain the differences between Drew Sanders and a guy that I like a lot, Jack Campbell, in terms of what type of linebacker they are and could bring to the Bills defense. That's interesting because I just found out, I didn't know this, that Luke Keekley was training uh, Jack Campbell. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about the Buffalo Bills and the connections, there would be no one who knows more about Jack Campbell than the Buffalo Bills based on the relationship with Luke Keekley. Uh, these guys are both interesting, and I love both of them uh, as Mike linebackers. Uh, Sanders is a guy who has pass rushing ability. You talk about a guy who had well, nine, ten sacks coming off the second level, plays hard, really relentless in terms of his approach. Great instincts and awareness. And so for him to make, I would say, a very difficult transition going from an edge player to being able to play inside, to me, that that speaks volumes about him. And then when you think about Campbell, Campbell is just old school in terms of instincts, range, his diagnostic ability, controls the tackle to tackle box. And he has a strong nose for the ball. And I just think those instincts uh, make it very, very difficult for, for offenses to deal with him. In both players, you're getting highly productive players. I would say Sanders is maybe the one that is a better blitzer, more effective uh, as your sub-packages if you can move them around. Uh, but Campbell plays a position like he's been played for the last 35, 40 years, and it's going to be hard to pass that up. And so, Bucky, the, the interesting thing, and I realize Nolan Smith is a completely different animal who you have mm-hmm. listed as your second best linebacker. Obviously, he's a pass rusher by trade. What what makes Sanders one, I guess, and Campbell four? What's the biggest difference between the two, if you could maybe split some hairs for us? You know, like, it's really not that big of a difference. When you look at these linebackers, um, it, 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 it really comes down to taste and flavor and then projected role that you're going to play. Uh, the thing that we have a difficult time doing is because college football has become so positionless, it's hard to really label these guys, the old school labels, the traditional labels that you have on draft boards. Uh, Drew Sanders was an edge player that plays inside in Arkansas, but he spent most of his career playing on the edges. Nolan Smith is a guy that can play with his hand down. He can stand up, but then you project him to be maybe an outside linebacker that plays in a stacked position at the next level. Trenton Simpson, great athlete. Trigger fires a little slower than some of those other guys, but the athleticism allows him to make up for a lot. And then you have Campbell, with the old school instincts, the old school thumper that plays in the middle. If you ask me the difference between Sanders and Campbell, it just comes down to taste. What are you going to ask the inside linebacker to do? Are you going to ask him to be incorporated in a part of the pass rush? Or do you want a traditional old school linebacker that can control the tackle box, can blitz on occasion, can play down the middle? Well, if that's the choice, then Campbell might be your guy. Either way, I don't know if you can go wrong with either guy. Terrific. Yeah, I have a question about the offensive linemen in this class because I think there is a scenario in which the Bills could maybe go offensive line relatively early in the draft, maybe even in the first round if the board falls in a specific way. Do you see Peter Skaronsky, who is your number two offensive tackle in this class, offensive tackle only, or do you think he could play guard? Is that his better position? Because the Bills have a long history now in this Brandon Bean era of loving and prioritizing versatility along the offensive line group. And to kind of follow that up, Already, is there any other of these top tackles that you think could actually move inside to guard in a pinch if they needed to? Yeah, now versatility is to be coveted everywhere. And the reason why you want a versatile uh, offensive line where you can miss a match is normally on game day, you only can dress eight, sometimes nine guys. So two of those guys have to be swing players, meaning they have to play tackle and guard. You have to play center and guard. And you have to 
in a perfect world, you want to put your best five linemen on the field and you want to be able to kind of reshuffle the deck to get it done. And Skoronsky, he certainly appears to have that ability. He is technically sound. He's really flawless with his footwork. The thing that you worry about, the arms aren't necessarily prototypical length and those things. And so that's why you hear people project him kicking inside. He kicked inside, he'd be a terrific guard. Uh, that versatility is real, and it's one of the reasons why people love him. And with the rest of the guys, when you look at the centers, uh, you think about John Michael Schmitz, you think about Luke uh, Weipler, Joe Pittman, Tipman, those guys can kind of bounce around and do multiple things because they're super athletic when they had to pivot. So that leads you to believe they also can play one one position over to the right left and play offensive guard. Knowing the Bills pick 27 here in round one, it's unlikely they even get a sniff of any of those top three tackles. Maybe Darnell Wright slips down there or Anton Harrison from Oklahoma. What what can you tell us about those two? I mean, I know Wright played right tackle last year, and he's a massive dude. I'm surprised his feet are as good as they are carrying so much weight. What he seems to be almost a bit of an anomaly because you don't see fleet-footed guys carrying that kind of tonnage. <laughs> yeah, no, you just don't see supersized edge blockers like that. This is a guy that has heavy hands. He plays with a nasty temperament. You already alluded to his ability to kind of move around. He's a big dancing bear in space. And when you look at him, you say, oh, this is a mauler brawler type. He's just going to kind of lean and mash and maul people. But no, he has some ability that is that is really, really different. Um he plays on the right side, but I, I just kind of want it. And once again, we've talked about like, hey, taking your best five and what you can do. He's a terrific right tackle. I wouldn't necessarily put him at left tackle. I just know that he is a dominant player. He could be a dominant player for a long time if he's positioned on the right side because that's what he's always Ooh. done. That's his natural spot. <laughs> All right, Bucky, as a draft guy myself, I got to ask you, and I don't mean to really put you on the spot here. You can throw out any name you want. Who is that? First round guy, in your opinion, that you seem to be much higher on when you look around the internet, you watch other TV shows, listen to other podcasts that the rest of the kind of draft community is not nearly as high on. Is there one player where you're just banging the table for that guy that you think he's a first round talent or just way undervalued at this point as we're exactly one month away from the draft? No, it's funny because I used to feel like Jackson Smith and Jigba was that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but now I feel like the, everyone has caught on after you kind of watched him work out. Uh, let's go to edge rusher, and I'll say Keon White from Georgia Tech, to me, is a bit undervalued. I mean, he is a hard-working, uh, relentless player off the edge. He kind of has some of that nonstop stuff that really fits in well. If you're a blue-collar team, a team that likes kind of those blue-collar guys, uh, to me, the Georgia Tech kid has – a lot of that stuff that you, you, you're looking for. And the other one I would say is Brian Breezy from Clemson. Uh, you have to understand, when he was coming out of high school, he was a cast me out. Uh, he might have been the number two recruit in the country, had a really good freshman year, gets hurt. Then his sister passed away with uh, cancer. And so that impacted the way he played. But once you look at the tools and you go back and you look at the, produ the production over the course of his time in Clemson, to me – I feel like people might be missing the boat a little bit on him and what he could be at the next level. Speaking of defensive tackles, the last one I've got for you, Buck, is a guy that you had fourth at DT, Mozzie Smith from Michigan, who may not be big in terms of body of work production, but is in terms of measurables. What's We, we always see this all the time, almost every year, Bucky. There's always 
some of these big guys that look like they have all the physical tools, but there's a risk. You wonder what you're getting. And, and, and I'm wondering if Mozzie Smith falls into that boat. What's the risk level there? Uh, well, the risk level is the production doesn't necessarily match the, the prototypical right. physical dimensions. But Michigan has had a few of those guys in recent years that have been like that. Rashad Garrett was like that. You know, great athlete, but you never saw the production. And then it takes a little while, but then it pops for him in Green Bay. Mozzie Smith is that great athlete, but I think he has a bad stance. He's kind of sits in that stance like a frog. And so you never see him really come out and explode and dominate. But then he's in Bruce Feldman's freaks list, and you see the numbers and just what he does in terms of moving weight and jumping and and all of this stuff. I mean, this is a, I mean, you talk about I mean, like a world-class athlete at that size. And so some of it depends on the coaching and what you have in the building and who's going to touch him. Uh, he has a lot of potential. Uh, and so sometimes in this class, there are a lot of decisions that are made more so on potential than production. Right. What are we thinking? Like probably early day two for him, or do you think he sneaks into I think borderline. I think borderline. I think you can see anywhere at the bottom of the first round, top of the second round, Mozzie Smith goes. Uh, He rates as a top 45 player. A lot of it is, in my estimation, when I look at his draft class, normally you have anywhere from 18 to 24 guys that are first rounders. This year, I would say maybe you have 15 that would be consensus first rounders. So from 15 to 45, there are a lot of talented players. And they're going to be ranked in all kinds of order. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him go at the bottom of the first. Bucky, thanks for all the insight. We appreciate the time during this busy time of year for you. We'll keep a lookout for uh, more of your stuff on NFL.com and on NFL Network. Thanks much. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. All right, that's Bucky Brooks, NFL Network draft analyst, and uh, just put out his top five at every position in this draft class. I got to tell you, Chris, when you have 15 – consensus round one grades on players that leads to a whole lot of not only uncertainty as to what's going to come after that but that makes it super topsy-turvy because you know that maybe there's some teams that only have 15 guys with first round grades and the people in the bottom of that round they be looking to get out yeah so they can get proper value in their estimation yeah, it just screams trade back, honestly, for the Bills. If we're just taking a guess one month out, I mean, last year the Bills traded up because Kyer Elam, they said, was their last first-round pick. Yeah. Maybe this year, if in general at the top this class is not as strong, the Bills might get to 27 and say, we have no first-round uh, talents on yeah. our board. Yeah, that let's trade back, let's try to get an extra third and a fourth and round out the roster with depth that way. We don't know how many the Bills have. Some teams will have 20. Some teams might only have 10. It definitely is a different kind of feel this year than last year. I think it's safe to say nobody's going to have 32. No, definitely Um, not close to that. (laughs) I mean, I think probably on the low end, it's like 12 to 15. Probably on the high end, it's maybe 22, 24, like maybe. Um, And that might be pushing it, which which really says something about this class because – I think COVID hits and some players said, I'm coming out now. And you had two draft classes the last two years that were flush with a lot of extra talent, particularly at the receiver position. Mm -hmm. And now it's almost like you're feeling the effects of that in this year's class because it is thin at a lot of positions. Like it's not as deep at receiver. It's 
precariously thin at defensive tackle, safety, yeah, a couple other spots. There's sharp drop-offs at other positions like linebacker. Mm-hmm. We're really feeling, I think, the effects of what the last two draft classes did. Yeah, and then to just speak specifically on, on what uh, Bucky talked about, the linebacker class at the top, with that to me being the Bills' most clear-cut need, I said it to Bucky, the top of the linebacker class, three different completely type linebackers yeah. that he mentioned. Drew Sanders is, I'm not going to call him Micah Parsons 2.0, but he's kind of that type where you can play him off the line, but you really want him rushing off the edge. Trenton Simpson is kind of that slot defender, will linebacker that you just want in space because he runs in the four fours and he's got crazy explosion, but maybe doesn't ID plays as quickly as you'd like. And yeah. then you have Jack Campbell, who did test very well, two years of a of surefire full-time starting at Iowa, maybe not as fast in a straight line, four, six, five at the combine, but the mental side and understanding where to be in coverage better than all of those linebackers. I'll be interested to see not only just where the Bills ultimately go, but how those players fall in the draft to see what the league prioritizes more. Is it athleticism? Is it are you a good tackler? Can you play in space? Those are three at-the-top consensus that are way different players. And Nolan Smith who in some people's eyes is an edge, but is listed in linebacker on Bucky's list, may go before all three of those yeah, guys. Yeah, exactly. Just because he's so bendy and did stupid things at the combine. What was four he? Three, sub 4-4, four, four, right? 4-3-9. Four, Holy crow. Yeah, I mean, he's just – he's a freakazoid on steroids. No, I mean, he's not on steroids, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. He's like a enhanced freakazoid. I, he blew me away. 4-3-8, maybe. Maybe 4-3-8. I knew, I knew he was going to run really well, but I was not expecting sub 4-4 four, four from a guy who might be playing Will Linebacker in the league uh, you know, and blitzing off the edge an awful lot. I mean, that guy is an unbelievable physical specimen in terms of testing, and he has some – I think he's got enough production. Even though it's hard to get on the field at Georgia if you're an underclassman because they got five stars yeah. coming out of their ears – uh, it's hard to get on the field and have a full body of work before you declare for the draft. I think he's got enough production to support the yeah. testing, right? Yeah, he does. And and he kind of reminds me a lot of Rashawn Gary, who Bucky talked about. Big-time college recruit, or recruit out of high school like Rashawn Gary was um, and ultimately never really put the pass rush moves together at Georgia, just like Gary at Michigan, but the explosion – enough production to warrant him being a first-round pick. If he can learn some pass rush moves at the next level, you could be talking about one of the best young, explosive players at the position. I'm just really interested to see the linebacker spot is is you're an off-ball linebacker, or are you that quarterback spy, edge defender, slot defender that's playing away from the football and not close to the center, or are you nose-on-the-ball middle linebacker type? That's where, like – where the delineation is at the linebacker spot today. It is positionless, but I think when you're looking at linebacker, it's two different positions in one. Right, and you have to know the prospect you're dealing with and what they what, they're what good they at, can do what and what they with. can't or what they can't do as well mm-hmm. maybe, what yep. their strengths are and try to play to those and then determine is that a fit for what we do defensively. Um, that's the rub. And then with the receivers, you know, we know the class isn't as strong as it's been in recent years. So what does that do to the class as a whole? Does it elevate the top three or four guys and you're forced to draft them sooner if you want them? Like, as we see with the quarterbacks all the time, their value gets pumped up because people need them, and it's an important position. Well, receiver is becoming an important position too, and in a, in a freak year where it's not as deep, 
are we going to see guys go off the board even earlier than anticipated because there's only three or four that you're that are worth taking in round one? Yeah, what's maybe really, three. Yeah, I. It's hard to tell. I don't think we'll know until draft night. What I always look back to, though, and we have these consensus opinions. I can watch the film. You can watch the film. I always think back to 2019 when Marquise Brown was picked, was the only receiver picked in the first round. Kind of, you know, not a good receiver class. Yeah. Then in round two, there was DK Metcalf, A.J. Brown, and Debo Samuel. And I remember that draft class. That was the thought. It's really, it's Marquise Brown, and then you got to wait till round two, not as good. We look back on the 2019 class. Anyone would pick Debo or A.J. Brown or D.K. Metcalf ahead of Marquise Brown. So just because right now even I'm saying it that it's not that great of a class, you're saying it, we could see those second and third rounders ultimately become better players, maybe because they're not thrust into a, hey, you're the wide receiver one instantly type of situation. They can grow into those roles like A.J. Brown did in Tennessee, Debo Samuel in San Francisco. Right. And so do they get inflated? Or does it slide? And then once it slides, where does the run start Mm -hmm. if it does slide? Because if nobody comes off the board in the first 20 picks at the receiver position, you're like, whoa, all right, when's it going to start? And then once it starts, is there a run or is there still Hmm. separation, you know, between one guy and the next? Like, I think Smith and Jigba is the best chance to go in the top 20, but he might not go until 20 to 25. And then if you're the bills or you're making a move like you did on Kyrie, like just get up a couple of spots. And especially because JSN had five catches for 43 yards last year. He's he's, yeah, that's not helping him. He's simultaneously like this proven commodity because at 19 years old, he led Ohio state in receptions and receiving yards on an offense with Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave but then he gets injured in the first game and then never really plays again. Yeah. Doesn't even play in the college football playoff semifinal game against Georgia where a lot of people thought, hey, he's going to come back for this big game. So he's like an enigma and a proven commodity at the same time, which is interesting. <laughs> Maybe he could ultimately be you know, available in the late teens or the early 20s. And at that point, if he's one of the last first-round grades that the Bills have, even though I'm not a big advocate for trading up, I think you would almost have to do that. Yeah. Let's hope for his sake he's not Jackson Smith enigma so (laughs) hopefully he's uh got a better pro career than that we will take a break here when we come back we're going to take a look at the tweet sheet to get your thoughts more of your thoughts on what you think the impact will be on buffalo's defense with sean mcdermott now set to be the defensive play caller this coming season you can also jump on the phone lines and join us at 803-0550-1888-550-2550 to get on board Chris and Chris back in a second here on One Bills Live, presented by Collada Health. It's Buffalo Bills Radio. Welcome back to One Bills Live. Chris Brown, Chris Trapasso with you here on a Monday. And diving into plenty of different stuff concerning the Bills. We've already talked about um, how Josh is a guy that maybe Sean McDermott's trying to help by taking over play-calling duty, so it's not all on him. Maybe he feels he can do a better job calling the plays himself. And then we were also discussing some other things going on, Demar Hamlin's future and how Coach is hoping for the best, but they're kind of secondary supporters. It's a Hamlin decision, not a Bills decision, but they would welcome him back if he decides he wants to play. He even said, Chris, even if it's an 11th-hour decision. So mm-hmm. that leads me to believe – if all of the testing and all the hoops he has to jump through to determine whether or not he can continue his football career and doesn't happen until August, it sounds like yep. they would entertain 
bringing him back even at that late stage, which is kind of interesting. I would imagine they're counting him on their books right now since he is under contract anyway. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of him figuring it out. So I thought that was a nice way for them to put it, you know, give him all the opportunity to get his ducks in a row, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But we are talking about Sean McDermott calling defensive plays for this team next season and the impact you feel it will have on the defense. And we haven't checked in on the tweet sheet yet, so we'll do that before we get back to the phones. Tweet sheet is always brought to you by Corrigan Moving Systems, the official equipment moving company of the Buffalo Bills. Jack leads us off, and he says, hopefully it's more aggressive with a more exotic selection of blitzes and zone drops. I hope they don't give 8 to 12 yards of separation at the line of scrimmage. We've heard that before. (laughs) That was the big mantra at the end of the season, Mm -hmm. I think, when they felt that they played too conservatively against the Bengals. Yeah, and and that was my, I think, gripe coming out of that game, too. I think the weather had to play a factor. Uh, The point that that I haven't seen brought up lately is that that was a very banged-up Bills defense in that game. And maybe that lent them to say maybe they should have blitzed a little bit more, or maybe Leslie Frazier was like, hey, we, we don't really have all the horses. We don't have Micah Hyde. We have Jordan Phillips with a hurt shoulder. Jordan Poyer is not healthy. No Von Miller. It really hamstrung what the Bills could do defensively in that game. In general, though, the NFL is about 70% zone today. Sean McDermott's not going to suddenly become a press man, cover zero, blitz-heavy coordinator, and I don't think the Bills or fans should want him to be because, again, yeah. they've been so good defensively. Maybe not as good as they want in the playoffs. Um, but maybe with Sean McDermott again, he's taking control of this, taking the reins and putting his own stamp on it. I, I think it will be a little bit more aggressive. That's the elephant in the room of if there is a tweak defensively, that's where the Bills need to go. Right. And I think one other thing, you mentioned the weather. It, it kind of slipped my mind. But for some reason, at least it seemed to me, and, and Eric Wood, because I was in the booth with him for that game, and – it just seemed like the Bills defenders were affected more by poor footing than Cincinnati's offensive players. And I understand they're backing up and Cincinnati players are going forward. Um, but it looked like Bills defenders were most impacted by the, the compromised footing on the field with snow covering it, you know, like a dusting of snow. And I don't know what it was, but it just felt like the Bills weren't as sure-footed as the Bengals players were in that game defensively it was bizarre at times yeah it was weird and I think too going into that game early in the week that Cincinnati Bengals divisional game it was all about how three of the Bengals offensive linemen starters were not going to play right the fact that there was no Daquan Jones late scratch in that game he was kind of banged up in that Dolphins wild card win and like I mentioned earlier Jordan Phillips had a hurt shoulder was not was clearly not himself, and then, of course, no Von Miller, kind of mitigated that perceived advantage that the Bills had at the beginning of the week. Joe Burrow was not really pressured a lot, and he does get the ball out, like you've mentioned, very quickly. Anyway, I think that to not have a pass rush against a good quarterback in a playoff game is usually going to end badly for your defense. So I don't think it would have mattered if the Bills would have blitzed 60% of the time, whatever the case would have been, or played a lot more man coverage. I still think because of a limited pass rush in that game, and the weather probably factored in, um, it was going to be tough sledding for the Bills against Joe Burrow that day. Let's go back to the phones at 803-0550, We go to DJ in Buffalo next, and let me pull him up here. What do you got for us, DJ? Hey, what's going on, fellas? How you doing? Good. Good, good. Yeah, well, you guys kind of took my point, but that's really what I was going to go with. I was going to say that the footing wasn't, didn't seem to be too good out there from what I saw. I was watching on my television, but from what I've seen, 
the guys didn't have it all together with footing wise. I saw a lot of miss like coverages blown and stuff like that from the DBs and whatnot. And like and actually, what's your point? You're saying as far as like our injuries too. It didn't help. We didn't have that pass rush. That pass rush was key against Joe Burrow. He's he's lighting it fast out of the pocket. He throws it like a madman. He reminds me like a a young Peyton for real, for real. That's what he reminds me of a lot. He's quick on the trigger, and um. I, I'm honestly, I'm very, I'm very high on McDermott being our, our coordinator. I think it's going to be a good defensive, you know, what I mean, run. And I, I think we're going to really going to have to work on our run stopping. That's really what the key is too. Yeah, we let Joe Mason run, dance on, dance all on us during that um that divisional round. So we can get, we can get, we can get some hands on, uh, hands on defense with the running. I think we'll be good. I think we'll be good to go. But I'm confident, McDermott. I think we'll be fine. We're in, we're in good hands. You know what I mean? He's definitely a proven D.C. in this NFL. All right. Thanks, DJ. Appreciate the phone call. And, yeah, well, we mentioned it already. Daquan Jones didn't play in that Cincinnati playoff game, and he was noticeably absent. Uh, I think nobody really – that was kind of like a don't know what you got till it's gone kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We didn't realize how valuable – well, I mean, I, I thought he was the most consistent defensive lineman on the team, and I think a lot of other people share that opinion – but you didn't really appreciate how much he brought to the defensive front, particularly against the run, until he wasn't in the game. And Joe Mixon's breaking off, you know, 10 and 15-yard runs here, there, and everywhere. That yeah. was tough. Yeah, and I think, too, with with to kind of talk about slipping the weather, playing soft. And I th- certainly think the Bills could have played a little bit more aggressively, more in the face of those Bengals receivers. A key component to why we see so much zone today, and I think Sean McDermott's philosophy, the bend don't break, you allow those two and three and four yard passes. That's part of the NFL. There's so much quick passing. You have to tackle well. And in that game, they did not tackle well. Maybe they were slipping a little bit more than usual. That's something that Sean McDermott, every offseason during free agency and the draft period, he always mentions getting sure tacklers at corner and at safety and at linebacker positions that you think, hey, they got to do other things. They got to cover. They got to be in the right position. Being able to tackle well, I think, is a key component to this defense, regardless of who's calling the plays. We're going to see mostly Ben don't break with Sean McDermott, but that was something I think was clearly missing yeah. in that game. It was really a problem for the Bills for most of last season when they were having to plug in depth players that just are not going to tackle as as, reliab- as reliably as a Micah Hyde or a Matt Milano or a Tremaine Edmonds or a Von Miller who were absent last season for certain stretches. Connor on the tweet sheet says, I think this will have a great impact. He spoke earlier in the offseason that he wants the defense to have a new level of nasty. It should be him instead of relying on another to, another coach to implement what he wants. Gerald says, with his defensive mindset, it can only help the defense. He can only coach up the players so much. Hopefully they put forth their maximum effort and more. Ultimately, it comes down to the players and whether they execute the defense he calls. Hard to argue. Tank says... Sean McDermott calling plays is not a good idea. He says a head coach is there to manage the game, provide oversight on all aspects of decisions by offense, defense, and special teams. I feel this will be too overwhelming to effectively be a head coach. And then finally, JT says, I think our defense will be more hands-on and hardcore with McDermott calling the plays. McDermott's going to put a big emphasis on tackling, something you just mentioned. We can't be missing tackles if you get your hands on the ball carrier. He must go down on first contact also more press coverage. All right. So I think on the whole, it's been positive. And the only ones that have concerns are ones that are worried that it's too much for him to deal with on a game day. That's really yeah. kind of where it comes yeah. down. I think that's where it comes down to. We've talked about having that um, stability with your assistant coaching staff. That certainly matters. And for as much as we've talked about this today, it's certainly big news. 
I'm the biggest believer in the NFL, it comes down to the players. That if you have Matt Milano, a healthy Tredavious White, you bring in Taylor Rapp, Micah Hyde, Jordan Poyer back together, we got, what, one and a half games of, of those two at the safety position together in Buffalo. Um, maybe a young, talented linebacker in the draft, fill some pieces on the defensive line. The defense is going to be good. Yeah. I, it, it's not a, a case where a specific coach could – drop this unit down to the worst in the league or one of the worst defenses could become the best in the league with coaching. By the time you're in the NFL, I think it is way more about the players executing on game day than any schematic things that you need to do. you got to be able to cover and tackle well and rush the passer. And the Bills do have the horses to do those three things. Yeah. Let's switch gears here because an atom bomb was dropped on John Harbaugh at the owners' meetings by Lamar Jackson who revealed on Twitter, literally as John Harbaugh was sitting down with the media at the owners' meetings, that he had told the Ravens he wanted to be traded back on March 2nd. He sent a letter out to his fans where he thanks them for all their love and support, but then he said in regard to his future plans, as of March 2nd, I requested a trade from the Ravens organization for which the Ravens has not been interested in meeting my value. That's not great English there, but... and. Any and everyone that has met me or been around me know I love the game of football and my dream is to help a team win a Super Bowl. Y'all great, but I had to make a business decision that was best for my family and I. And then he just bids adieu to basically the Baltimore flock, which is their fan base. Um, this was completely premeditated, <laughs> the timing, timing wise, of this yes, message. Absolutely. Um, to have John Harbaugh face the music. Now, John Harbaugh said, we expect to have him back as a Raven this season. What else is he going to say? Exactly. But this looks like a bridge burned. Yeah, it it really does to me. And I'm sure anyone watching, listening has heard every different take on Lamar Jackson. To me, what I've taken from it is I think there are 30 other NFL teams, not including the Browns, because they already have their big Deshaun Watson contract that set this new precedent to a certain degree. Watching this very closely because – I think people understand in general that the Watson thing was an anomaly. The Browns were told that they were out of the running for Watson last year. The next day, he gets traded to Cleveland. They yeah. sign him to this. And give up three first-round picks. And, three oh first-round picks, $80 million more, fully guaranteed at signing than Aaron Rodgers, who at the time was the highest-paid quarterback in the NFL. The rest of those owners understand, look, that is an anomaly. It's an outlier. Not going to be followed by other teams. If it is then followed by the Ravens, this organization, very steady, perennial playoff team, won a Super Bowl under Steve Bisciotti, the owner. Suddenly, if they give in to Lamar Jackson and they give him close to a fully uh, guaranteed deal that reaches the Watson level, then I think it's really a precedent. Yeah. And then Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert and Trevor Lawrence are like, hey, now two quarterbacks and one very stable organization has done that. Um, that's why I think it is so messy. Jackson wants that. I understand he's aiming for that Watson deal, but I really think the Ravens have a lot of pressure on them from outside the other ownership in the NFL because they don't want to necessarily kind of double down on this fully guaranteed well, deal. That and now you're at a stage here in free agency where a lot of people have spent their money. Yeah. Who's going to be able to take on a brand new quarterback contract this late in the game? I mean, sure, you can move some money around. And, by the way, give up a couple of first-round yeah. draft picks in the process for a guy that got hurt and missed five games each of the last two years. I mean, 
it sounds crazy, but Lamar Jackson may have overplayed his hand. And this might just be a desperate move. It's crazy. We got to take a break here, but uh, Chris and I will wrap up our thoughts on where this Lamar Jackson thing goes next as it just it reached <laughs> it reached critical mass at about 12 noon today. Absolutely nuts. Chris and I back to close things up here next on One Bills Live. Stay tuned. All right, so we were talking about Lamar Jackson's atom bomb that he dropped on his head coach, John Harbaugh, with his tweet that he had asked for a trade earlier this month. Where does it go from here is the question. And if he holds fast to wanting his entire contract guaranteed, I don't know if there's going to be a team that even wants him. And here's the thing. If, if he wants a trade, which he said he requested March 2nd, you mentioned it off air. What team is going to trade multiple first-round picks and give him a fully guaranteed deal that he wants that probably sniffs or maybe even exceeds the Deshaun Watson deal that is 230, 240 million fully guaranteed. I think he could get near the top of the market, but to ask a team, oh, hey, can we have two first rounders in a second? And then you need to sign Jackson for that yeah. long. It just seems very far fetched for a good, a very good young quarterback but someone that's not going to be able to convince a team to do all of those things to acquire his services. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to get two team, a team to cough up two ones, and then they still got to negotiate with Lamar after it went so poorly with the Ravens, mm -hmm. who are known for getting veterans locked up more often than not, especially if they're franchise-caliber players. So where it goes, I don't think it's going to end anytime soon. This has got a recipe of an ugly finish written all over it. The only thing that it – if – if Lamar is a man of precedent that where people have said that he's not going to play, like he would truly hold out yeah. and just not play, that obviously makes the Ravens be like, uh, who are we going to play at quarterback? Like suddenly. We'll see you tomorrow, guys.